Hello and welcome to the Modern Divorced Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Tarasio. I'm the owner of Modern Law, a family law firm in the Phoenix area. I've been a divorce attorney for more than 15 years. I've got four kiddos and I'm divorced myself. And on this podcast, we're going to cover everything related to divorce, be it legal issues, financial issues, children issues, blended family issues, counseling, mediation, and more. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hello there. This is Billy Tarasio with the Modern Divorce Podcast, and I am thrilled to welcome Tammy, Tammy Haley to the show today. Tammy is a family law attorney here in the Valley located in Northwest Mesa. And she is a fantastic friend, a great practitioner, and I'm so excited to have her here. Hello, Tammy. Hi, Billy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I love your name and I love it so much that when I first introduced you, I like merged in Tammy and Haley. all the time. Really? Taylor? <laughs> I like it. I might use that one. I like it too. <laughs> well, Tammy, I am so excited to have you here. And I want to know, you have a great background and, and a lot to cover. Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I uh, grew up in Phoenix. I'm originally from New Jersey, which gives me a of a a mouthy edge when I'm talking to people, but I grew up in Glendale. I went to all Arizona schools. I went to NAU for undergrad. I went to the U of A law school. Uh, I started practicing in 2001. I was a prosecutor. I got a lot of trial experience and then went into family law. Uh, That was early, early in my career. And I can tell you, I was not as I was definitely very young. I think right out of law school, practicing family law, there's a lot of emotion. And it really wasn't until I started as a guardian ad litem for the Children's Law Center on a volunteer basis that I really got to understand how you approach some of the family cases. Okay. So you were talking about um, being a guardian ad litem and how that prepared you for family law. You know, you have to see the divorce or the child custody matter from the the eyes of the child. Mm. And it what it was not until I started representing kids and hearing from them directly that you find out what's really going on in the marriage. They know everything. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting and I want to know. Like what did you learn from these kids? Well, I used to I learned that children can be like little hidden cameras in your life. Uh, they might be looking down at their phone or playing their video game, but they are listening and they're paying attention. They, they, some of them can really multitask. And if you have three kids and one of them is a multitasker, they're going to be, you know, talking maybe to their siblings about what, what mom and dad had said or what mom and stepdad had said. And so it really taught me like teacher clients to never have these conversations about the divorce or about court anywhere near the kids. They need to be insulated from that. They don't deserve to be dragged into it. So when you were a GAL or a guardian ad litem, these were all on high conflict cases, right? Absolutely. I was court appointed uh, through the, the Children's Law Center, which is part of the volunteer lawyers. So it was part of my pro bono hours and we got some training from some of the best pro bono or some of the best guardian ad litems that would take us through the process. And really you're looking to see that the court might have some concerns there is a dependency. Now this has changed. Uh, The court rules changed in, I think, 2006. 
or seven where there are no more guardian ad litems uh, in that capacity. It's now a best interest attorney. So the role has changed just slightly, but the experience is probably about the same because you do get a lot of contact with the kids. So what were the big, like broad brush takeaways? How do children experience divorce? Just depends on their parents, I think. Ideally, they're going to still feel safe through the process, no matter what happens. They need to feel the love and the safety and the security, but they're going to go through the same fears about their future and their security and their safety that their parents do if it's mm-hmm. if it's not addressed. Mm-hmm. So that's a great point. And I think, you know, many times when you hear the, the, the guidance on how you're supposed to tell your children you're getting divorced, best case scenario, you do it together is what, you know, common knowledge is you sit down your kids, you tell them it's not about them. We both love you and everything's going to be fine. Um, But what I'm hearing you say, and what I've what I've experienced through my practice and through my children is that they really want to know, like, what does this mean for me? Where will I live? How will I be taken care of? Which is, I think, perfectly appropriate for them to be feeling and thinking, and maybe not something that we affirmatively know to address. Yeah. Where am I going to celebrate my birthday and where, which house is Santa going to come to? Yeah. These are real concerns. Oh man. You are so right. And, and I have never heard, I've never thought about this, like the list of questions that you just posed and how we should have this as a checklist to just make sure like, Hey, if you, if you, what would Santa do? Like, how would that work? And, and what a great idea. And, and just, it's so complicated when parents are going through divorce themselves to try to figure out like what's in my kiddo's brain, any Um, suggestions on how to do that better? I think it's so important to make sure the kiddos feel safe and secure and loved. And Santa's going to go to both houses or whatever, you know, we're going to let Santa know that you're going to be at dad's at Christmas Eve. And he knows, you know, to leave the presents at mom's for you or whatever it is. And just Make them feel like their life is not going to turn upside down. I I heard on one of your, I think one of your podcasts, you talked about nesting. And that is one of those things that you can explore or even maybe a modified nesting or, you know, sometimes kids feel really safe at grandma and grandpa's house. Maybe that's where you want to celebrate Christmas, wherever they, for you know, maybe the first year. And I, I say Christmas, it can be Hanukkah or whatever, you know, celebration, But those holidays are really important for kids as well as summers. You know, where are they going to be for the summer? Um, Those are really, are their schools going to change? Are they going to lose their friends? So those are all things uh, some people will choose, might need to consider staying in the same neighborhoods, even though that might be hard depending on the neighborhood, affordable wise, right? just to keep the kids in the same school or around their same friends. So they don't feel like their world has just come down. You bring up a great point. It's not just where am I going to live and where am I going to go to school and who's going to pick me up? It's also, what about our family traditions? Because family is so much about rituals and traditions. And so what you know, how will that affect, how will that be affected by mom and dad's divorce? And in some ways, I don't think, you know, until you start, start doing it. Right. You have to roll with the punches and keep communicating with the kids and, 
respect them and listen to them and take their cues. You know, if they're having problems in school, you have to kind of look back and look at all these changes that they've had. I mean, it's a huge change for the adult. It's a huge change for the parties. What about the kids or, you know, everything from, yeah, the celebrate celebrations are huge for kids. Yeah. That's like a, that's like a, it's like a marker in life. Like, oh, remember that Christmas or that summer vacation. So those are super important. You're, you are so right. And I think it's like sometimes the last thing we're thinking about if, if a parent's life is falling upside down is how do we create celebrations for kids? But it is a big deal and it's something to keep in mind. I'm really happy that you mentioned it. Now you are a stepmom, which I think is so cool. I'm also a stepmom. Um, and step parenting can be hard, right? It can be hard, but it can be so rewarding. I love my stepdaughter and yeah, it's, it's, I think it can be hard if you don't follow some guidelines. Well, I want to talk about those guidelines. Um, how old was your stepdaughter when you and your husband got married? She was a little older when we got married. I, I got into her. I, we became acquainted when she was 15 years old. Wow. Not an easy time. It can be so hard. And I wait, we waited, of course, until our relationship was solid until, until I was introduced. And that was just something that I've always believed. And it's something that my husband agreed on. And so by the time I, it came time to meet her, we were moving in together. (laughs) So we wanted to, well, I think kids get attached. And I think that when you're going to, you know, she had been through two divorces. So that's something that you kind of have to be aware of that, you know, she's been through a lot. Let's not throw someone into her life right away, unless it's going to be permanent. Right. So we, we waited. And when we met, it was wonderful. And she loved my dog. So we're both dog lovers. We have that in common. And, you know, I just don't try to be her mom. Okay. So this is pretty critical. And I think, um, I think a lot of step parents, don't understand that. So tell me what you mean by I don't try to be her mom. You know, she's she's got two parents. Her dad and I are married and I respect their relationship and I respect him enough to be the parent and I respect her mother to be her mother. And you know, we we're not I wouldn't say we're friends her her mother and I, but I think there's a mutual respect there where um I respect her, you know, the, her home, what Katie does in her mom's home is her business. And I don't try to ask these probing questions that some parents do. And she's, you know, what she does at her mom's, if she wants to share, that's great. But if, if there's something going on and she needs to be talked to, that's, that's her parents' job. I'm her fun auntie. That's how I see myself. And we have a great, a great relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you see like, you know, a behavior issue or something you don't like, you just pass that along to dad and diffuse the situation. Is that the, is that the strategy? I do pass that along to dad and I let dad decide if it's something he wants to address. And then and if he doesn't want to address it, then end a story. Yeah, it really is. It's the end of the story. And luckily there, there really hasn't been a lot of that, but that's kind of the social kind con- the unwritten social contract when you, I, I signed up for a single dad. And so she came with the deal and 
I've been very happy with the arrangement, but it was with those understandings and the respect. Okay. So talk to me about, I mean, you've already sort of hit on these, but what are the rules or the guidelines that you would say for successful step parenting? So don't try to be their parent. And now this is really important if your stepchild has another parent. I think it would be a little different if her mother or her father was not in the picture. I think that might be a difference. So this is in situations where they have a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, reach out to the parent, reach out to her. Uh, but Well, in this case, it's her mother. Um, be nice to them offer your help because, you know, you're another adult in their child's life. Offer to introduce yourself. Um, Be there for your stepchild. Like we we had a situation where both Katie's parents were out of town and she was at ASU and she fell and hit her head and somebody needed to take her to the emergency room. And so that was me. And so be there as, you know, the other adult that's loyal and is going to take care of what's needed to take care of. So assure the other parent, call me, you know, here's my number. If there's an emergency, you don't have to be friends, but there has to be some mutual respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I really like that. Like be a resource for that kiddo that that kiddo can count on and they can call you and they know that you're going to be there and you're going to get them what they need. And then if that means, you know, if there's, if there's other more complicated parent type issues, you just pass along to the parent. Pass it along. That's the beauty of being a step parent. You get to be the fun one. You know, yeah. revel in that. Don't tra- take on a role that's going to make you unhappy. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I I sort of liked. I have four kids and a stepdaughter, and her dad and I are divorced now. But we were married. Her, you know, she's nineteen, and we were married for fifteen of those years. So I consider her my stepdaughter, and it's it's easier it's more fun you're you don't have to deal with the hard stuff like you just get to be a resource you get to be a mentor so i mean i think it's pretty cool it is absolutely and plus because i don't have my own children i still have a resource to find out about all the latest pop culture mm-hmm. references <laughs> and sh- she will text me cute little videos. And then of course she has to explain them to me. Like she has to explain TikTok to me. I don't know about these things, but I get to learn and be a part of this young person's amazing life really without having to do any of the work. Right. Right. <laughs> so, and you get to come in at 15 and I think teenagers are awesome. Not everybody does, but I think they're awesome. Um, it's just, it's, I think the more, you know, adults that children can have that are like their resources and people they can learn different things from. It's just a, a really beautiful benefit to, you know, a divorced family. I think the more love that child gets and more support, the better. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. So we could talk about this forever, but I want to get back to your work as a GAL. I know these are with high conflict parents and, um, and I, one thing that keeps coming up recently that is one of the biggest issues that my clients are facing is how to help their children deal with a narcissist ex or narcissist parent. Did you see that as a GAL? I did see personality disorders and that uh, the narcissism is one of them. And there were times when we had to recommend a psych, a psychological evaluation. You, you saw children with, with, um, 
parents who had personality disorders. And I, I want to know, like, from the children's perspective, what that's like and what can be done. So hard. I think, number one, consider getting a professional involved, either mm-hmm. a child therapist who understands these issues and can talk to the child and explore their feelings. Because remember, you're not going to want to quiz the child about what's going on at, let's just call it dad's house. Mm -hmm. They're going to need somebody to talk to who understands some of these really subtle, emotional, I'm going to say tortures or manipulations. That professional should be able to address those. What does that look like? What are some of the emotional tortures that that kids have to deal with? And how, how would a parent know if that's what your child is experiencing or if it's something else? As a parent, you're probably going to know a little bit because that that other party treated you that way. And so you're going to see some of the same signs or symptoms. It's it's so tough, I think, being a child. When you're when you're a child, you need to be the center of the world, not the parent. And mm-hmm. so a lot of kids get that where they're not getting they're not getting the love and security because so much of the focus is on their parent. So everything mm-hmm. is about them. Mm-hmm. A parent, I think a big red flag is when the child knows everything about the divorce and all of the process and when the next court date is. I think that's a sign that there might be something going on personality wise. That's a great point. We all know that we're not supposed to talk about our kids, but some parents seem to just be unable to help it. And um, so in your experience, that type of behavior, that type of lack of self-control or lack of self-discipline is somebody who really can't put the kids' needs above their own. I think so. Of course, I'm not a psychologist. I wouldn't be able to diagnose anybody, but it is a red flag to me when, when yeah, they can't, they can't control their emotions. Being a parent is the hardest job in the world and you have to keep your emotions in check. But somebody with a personality disorder might not be able to do that. So in your work as a GAL, I'm, I'm assuming that you saw some of these parents be ordered to go get therapy by the court. Ordered to, yes, therapy or or at least to be evaluated and then find out. Usually it's going to be the the professional, the psychologist that makes a recommendation to mm-hmm. the court and then the court will decide whether to adopt. And when these parents went through the recommended treatment, were did that make a difference? So in my guardian ad litem work, I was not appointed on the case long enough to really see that through. Mm. And it can be, but but as a divorce lawyer, I can see kind of how that works. And sometimes it's not always successful. I think the parent who has the psycholo- the narcissist is going to have to change. They're going to have to be open to recognizing their limitations, their maybe lack of empathy for what their child is going through. They have to want to make that relationship better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I read recently that narcissistic behavior does get better with age, which is interesting. I think it was a relatively recent study, but it makes me hopeful that um, that I, I think most parents love their children and want to do a good job. And I also think that one of the only ways to lose custody is by failing to recognize your children's needs. And so Hopefully, you know, when the when the court says to people, you're going to lose your children if you don't change the way you're acting, hopefully that makes a difference. 
it, it is, it's so hard though these days with kind of the direction of how, how the courts are looking at parenting. I mean, it's, it's a minimally competent parent that gets to have their time with the child. So even though the parent is going to be psychologically not stable, it takes quite a bit. I mean, it has to be a really serious situation for, for it to come to those consequences. But look at the, you know, if you look at the effect it's having on the child, I think that is probably a bigger cue. The child is not doing well in school. They're their relationships are suffering. They might, as they get older or even now younger, either get into fights at school or sometimes they might turn to substance abuse or, and those kind of things are how it plays out. Um, I know that the effects of having a, an untreated narcissistic parent can last a lifetime for these little people. And so they become adults that have st- struggle with their relationships. Mm. They don't, they don't feel safe. They don't have trust in, in a, they don't have that security or trust in their next relationships or they become codependent. They become completely focused on another person in their life and they sacrifice their own needs. That's what I see of, of children of narcissists. Wow. I, I think, okay, you just said a ton of things and all of them were really important. Um, the first thing you said is in Arizona, you just have to be a minimally viable parent. And unless the the effects of the parent's personality disorder is really hurting the child, and you can see that with actual, you know, injury and and evidence of that hurting the child, you're not going to be able to get the child away from the parent. Is that right? Did I understand that correctly? I think that could be a risk. I think that might be when when you're dealing with a, a narcissistic parent on the other side of, you know, on the other side of the aisle, you, you're going to have to build that case. You're, you're going to need to gather the evidence. It, you, it's not going to work. I don't think, I don't know if, what you're, how you've experienced this, but if you go in and tell the judge, my ex is a total narcissist and he's completely self-absorbed and he, you know, co- talks about me constantly there's going to need to be some evidence of this. Mm -hmm. Some judges are very intuitive. Um, I think they all want to be, I think they all want to make good decisions for the kids, but you know, we've got time constraints and we've got due process that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So we've got to build a case and we've got to look at the school, look at the school records or, you know, how are your children's relationships? How are they doing in, they might need, the child might need therapy. What does the therapist say? That's a a great point. And that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So you said that the, the possible effects of growing up with parents with personality disorders are an inability for kids to have healthy relationships themselves. They might be unable to attach or they might be codependent. And I think those are opposite ends of the spectrum. Is that right? I think so. I think I would definitely, if I had a, a situation that was really serious like that, I would, I would get a psychologist or behavioral health therapist on board to look at all of those things. And how, how is this affecting the child psychologically? Sure. So you're going to need an expert witness if you don't have, if you don't have real harm, you know, if you've got a child who's, you know, miserable at one parent's house, which sometimes happens and, you know, reacts by having their own mental health crisis or bad grades or something like that, then it's fairly easy. But if the child is not, if they're simply internalizing all of this, then you may have to have an expert witness that can testify to the damage that's happening 
And then the other question I have is, can what tools, do you have any idea what tools a psychologist can be giving a child who is spending time with a, a parent with a personality disorder that will help them to not have these relationship problems like codependency or an inability to attach and form healthy relationships? So one of the, uh, a good friend of mine is, is familiar with this. She is a therapist and in Colorado, and she's taught me that she works with kids. A lot of, I think her number one thing is self-care and self-confidence for the kiddos and learning that they can verbalize their feelings in a safe place. And I think that's what she does and understand they don't have to be part of the conflict and give them kind of strategies for dealing with their parents' conflicts. Um, They're not part of it. And I would love to get into that with her more, but that's kind of the strategies I think that they start with is really is, is making sure this kid or these kids uh, learn, learn that they're, they need, of course they don't have to take care of themselves, but their self-esteem really has to be the focus. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Children who are, you know, really pleasers or really look to outside influences to be, to feel like they're okay, are probably at bigger risk than those kids who are born with like, I don't care what you think, I'm fantastic. (laughs) Those kids, those narcissistic kids might be a little bit more insulated. (laughs) I think out of it a little bit. I think children are supposed to be a little self-centered. It's a healthy exploring phase, but when the kids feel like they have to take care of their parents, one of the other big red flags to me is when the child suddenly refuses to go to one of the parents' house. And so sometimes that's the result. I it's a controversial, the, the parental alienation that can sometimes be the product of a narcissist. And I think that's just a, a huge challenge when when the narcissistic parent tries to turn the children away from the other parent as because that person can be the enemy to a narcissist. And a narcissist is going to make sure that, you know, nobody else likes that person because that person's crazy, that, per, that you know, mom is crazy, mom's bad, mom was a terrible parent. That's so, what the narcissist does. And those, every child wants approval of their parent. Mm-hmm. And if they, they if they say, hey, the only way I'm going to get approval from my narcissist parent, I don't think they're thinking this out loud, but is to agree. And if I love mom, dad's not going to like me. He's not going to give me attention. So this is a, is a, such a hard topic because children either reject the parent because the parent is emotionally abusive and they are setting up a boundary and they're saying, I don't want to deal with that anymore. Or they become manipulated by a parent with a personality disorder who convinces them to reject the other parent for non-logical reasons. And trying to sort that out is one of, I think, the most difficult things that a judge has to do. So difficult. I think when you start delving into these issues, it, it, there's got to be some eyes and ears of the court that starts to look at this, either either through that expert or now we have court-appointed advisors or best interest attorneys that can be somewhat neutral and look at both parents and their living situation and be an investigator. Mm-hmm. 
And as attorneys, we have to learn that. And and I didn't really practice this way before doing my guardian ad litem work that you kind of have to look at all the evidence and, and take a big picture approach um, to come up with the best strategy for your client. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and be an investigator and dig really, really deep. And I think having, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but the, the court has just gotten rid of the behavioral health roster. I did. This is a big deal. Huge. And so this means really that, you know, good counselors who are working with children now can become experts in a whole, in a whole lot easier way than they could before, because the court before was really just looking to only a handful of people for information or advice. And that's gone now. I think we're all, I did some work recently for a homicide case for, with a friend of mine. And the focus of that case was Daubert. Mm-hmm. And I think our family bar is going to need to become intimately familiar with Daubert. I'm so glad so, you brought that up. <laughs> no, none of our listeners are going to have any idea what we're talking about <laughs> because we are geeking out on on attorney stuff. But I I totally agree with you. I had um, a Daubert hearing in a case not that long ago, and the judge called it wholly unreasonable, and it wasn't even close to unreasonable. But it's because the family court is not used to this. But we're going to have to figure out which experts are qualified and which opinions should get in because if you can pay experts to 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 state an opinion, you can pretty much get an expert to say anything you want. It becomes a war of the experts at that point. And we, you know, the per, it, it's a little bit harder in family court because we have the same, you know, your judge is also your jury. So mm-hmm. you, they're going to hear the evidence, even though you say this person is unqualified. So it becomes, you have to really if you really want to geek out, we can talk about the rule six deletion. (laughs) We can't notice judges anymore. I think that's been proposed. It's totally true. And I know that, I know that that rule was suspended, that we could not notice judges. So previously we, uh, attorneys were allowed to file a motion for a change of judge once as a matter of right, without, without any permission, without any reason. And I knew that that was suspended during coronavirus, but are you saying that that's gone? I don't think it's gone. I think there's a proposal that I read that that is, it's been proposed that mm-hmm. that be permanently, you know, basically right now the way it is with COVID and they want to make that permanent. Now, mm-hmm. of course, I love every judge I've ever appeared in front of. It mm-hmm. doesn't apply to me. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it is, it is an issue. And uh, with the experts, um, I think you could always get whatever expert you wanted. I know I've had, you know, the child therapist testify as fact witnesses, but, and you can designate them or you can try to designate them as, as experts, but it wasn't really done that much. I think you're right. The behavioral health list was kind of, we leaned on that. Yeah. And I think you could bring in outside experts, but I think that they were never appointed by the court. And and I, at least in my experience, they were never appointed by the court unless they were on the list. You're right. Right. Unless you proposed it and the other party agreed to it, it was very rare. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, this will change a lot. It will. And another thing, as a parent and I think as an attorney, if you do have somebody off the list, there are a lot of therapists and psychologists that do not want to testify. It's a little bit like a like a home appraisal. 
you know, you've got your real estate appraisers that don't want to go to court or testify. So that's important that you have that conversation. Hey, can I call you as a witness if you do this evaluation? Because some of them do not want to do it. You're you're absolutely right. And then some of them might be fantastic at their craft, but be terrible at testifying. And that's not good for your case. So it's 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 a situation where you either have to invest in some coaching for them to learn how to testify, or you have to not only pick a counselor who's really, really good, but also a counselor who can articulate themselves very well in front of a court. Somebody who, yes, the court will also trust and mm-hmm. believe and take their recommendations. Otherwise, it can be many thousands of dollars not used in the best way. Right, right. Or think about, think about like what no psychologist has, has ever, well, unless you've been an expert witness before, you have not experienced what it's like to be cross-examined by a lawyer where they take your work and rip it apart. And that's our job. But, um, you know, if you have a psychologist who, who, who caves, who's like, oh yes, you must be right. I made a mistake. (laughs) That would be really bad. Think exactly. It's going to be a challenge for lawyers because we already, I think we either know somebody who knows the expert or we know that expert ourselves. And so we can kind of, we kind of know what to ask or maybe what their soft spots are, but the whole universe of experts is going to expand for family lawyers in a big way. Absolutely. It's going to get exciting. I think it's going to be very exciting, but hopefully I think if they expand that sort of universe of options, then Maybe the competition will go down. Maybe the prices will go down. I don't know. Ooh, that's totally true. And at least what it does is it opens up um, availability to clients because a lot of clients felt like they had already seen all the experts or that experts were just recommending they go talk to other experts on the same list. And so it really does open up the availability of of people who can come in and you might even be able to to work with people now who aren't in the same geographic area as long as they're licensed here since we are online it really opens a lot of possibilities it does um it even opens more possibilities when there's a relocation case mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know you've got more options and maybe the courts going to be more open minded now i read somewhere that the court said hey we never we never suggested by having this list that we endorse, but mm-hmm. that was the effect. It was. You're absolutely right. Do you think you'll now sign up to become a best interest attorney or are you totally in private practice? I have not done best interest work in quite some time. I am in private practice right now. I would not rule it out in the future. Of course, that would be as a best interest attorney or some attorneys are court appointed advisors. So I haven't ruled it out, but right now I do strictly practice divorce law just for the parents. I, I really, or for, you know, for the parties, I haven't represented children now, but it's still, it still guides my practice in such a big way. Well, Tammy, we will put your contact information in the podcast notes so that people can contact you. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Billy, this was so fun. I love talking about these issues with you because you're so up to speed on them. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you too. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Modern Divorce Podcast. Remember, anything you've heard today or anything you read online is not the replacement 
for actual consultation with an attorney and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Even if you called in and we spoke to you, you are anonymous and we don't have your details and you have not become a client of Modern Law. However, we would love to speak with you or you should seek out the advice of legal counsel or counseling or any other expert near you. And if you have an idea for a show topic or you need to speak with an attorney in Arizona, you can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at mymodernlaw.com.